Good morning, Door Creek. It is good to be back, welcoming you here to this service. My name is Mark, if you're a guest here today, and I'm back from Africa. And it was quite a trip, and I really appreciate your prayers. And it was great to see firsthand what your generous giving is doing in our partnership with World Relief in seeing lives being changed in a very remote part of northern Kenya, the Turkana region. In the last three years, we've been trying to help out in this partnership, the Turkana people. The strategy is pretty simple, and it's brilliant. Dig a well. We've been part of sponsoring wells. These people have had two rains in the last two years. They're not expecting another rain for six months. And everything about the landscape told you that is true. Dig a well so they can have fresh water, so that they can plant a garden. That's their second strategy. Plant a garden. These gardens that come off the wells that are not only giving clean water for the people in the village, but then allowing this drip irrigation system to bring produce out of a ground that you and I would look at and say, no way. There is no way anything great is going to come out of this ground. Beautiful gardens that, is, that are feeding families. And as they plant gardens, then they're planting churches. And so two weeks ago today, I was preaching in that church. And those are the walls. And that's the roof. And that's a new congregation that has just started because of that well, because of that garden. And lives are being changed. I can't wait to tell you a lot more about it next week when we uh, have our celebration weekend. Now, you know I was supposed to go from Kenya. Maybe you don't. But I was supposed to go from Kenya and fly to Monrovia. And right as we were leaving, the Ebola thing was just kind of coming to a head and we weren't sure. And everybody at that point would say, it's okay, CDC, the day before we leave, nothing. No, no message at all. They're just describing the disease. And as we hit the ground in Kenya, all of a sudden, State Department briefings are coming out. You shouldn't travel there. You shouldn't travel there. So it was an easy decision on one hand to make, but it was extremely hard. Because we were all excited about going up to our sister church in Monrovia, to dedicating the new training center that we've been a part of through All In, that you've been a part of, and then having a pastor's conference, 50 pastors coming from around Liberia there to do some training. And so we weren't able to go there. And right now, I'm pretty sure, not positive, pretty sure that Evangelical Free Church in Monrovia can't gather right now. Can't, you can't get together in public assembly. In fact, Matthew is basically trying to lead a church that is gripped with fear and trying to protect his children from this deadly virus. And here's the statistic I heard um, from, I think it was the World Health Organization. This lady was being interviewed and said, in a country of 4.1 million people, they have now less than 100 doctors. And many of the health people have already died. And so they're saying this is the tip of the iceberg. And we just need to pray. Even as last week we prayed for the situation in Iraq, as our hearts have been moved about increased conflict again on the West Bank and Palestine and Israel. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters in West Africa and specifically for Pastor Matthew and our sister church. So would you pray with me? Dear God, we acknowledge that you alone are a refuge and strength. You are an ever-present help in trouble. 
And we pray that your presence with your people around West Africa, specifically with our sister church, would remove the fear. Lord, they've been calling out to you, righteous God, for relief from their distress. And we join them in saying, have mercy, God. Have mercy. Strengthen Pastor Matthew as he leads his church. Encourage the people. Protect. Heal. For the glory of your name, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it is my honor and delight to welcome back Pastor Alex G., my friend, fellow pastor here in Madison, Pastor Fountain of Life. Alex is no stranger to Door Creek. We've been in partnership with Pastor G. and Fountain of Life for well over a decade, and it has been my singular joy to have a friendship with Pastor G. and with his wife, Jackie, and to see our churches working together in this city. When I invited Pastor G. to speak on this day, it was to be an historic day, a day where everybody told us, the construction would be well behind us and we would be kind of dedicating our new digs here at Sprecher Road. And uh, as often happens with construction, the timeline was delayed. But I said to Pastor G, we won't be dedicating the new building, but no worries. We're in a series called Ready the House, which isn't about that physical space. It's about readying the house of God, which is the people of God, the living stones, Peter calls us that have been fitted together by God to be his house in this place and from this place through the city and around the world. And so I I asked him to just bring a message that has to do with our theme of readying the house, preparing the people of God for what lies ahead for us. And then the events of this past week took place, and it was on my heart to say to Pastor G, now, now things are going on in Ferguson, Missouri, that have been going on in our country, and things are being raised up again. And I want you to have the freedom to speak to these things as you would to your own congregation. So here's here's an irony. Most churches, like our church, and I'll be honest, if Pastor G wasn't here today, I'm not positive, I hope, but I'm not positive we'd have talked about it. And in God's providence... He had Pastor G slated for this weekend. I thought it was for building dedication, but it's for more than that. So I said to to Alex on Thursday morning, I want you to have the freedom to speak to these things as you bring the message. And about 3.30 yesterday afternoon, a couple hours before the service, he says, I have an idea. He says, what if, I've got a message, but what if we just have a conversation about these things? And so we decided... We think that would be a good thing to do. And so we did that last night. Um, God was here, and uh, we're going to do it this morning. This is, in a sense, unrehearsed. This is what's on our heart. This is a conversation about the things that are going on in our world, in our country, in our city, and what does it mean to be a people of God at this time furthering Christ's purposes. So I'm going to invite Alex up here, and let's give him a warm Door Creek welcome. (laughs) 
So, Alex, why don't you um, begin by uh, just telling us a little bit. Some people here know your story, and a lot of people don't. So, why don't you fill us in on your story? First of all, I want to say good morning, Door Creek. It's been a few years, but it's really good to be here and to see you and to be able to walk around and see the, the exciting things that are, that's taken place here on these grounds. You've got, a pretty, you've got to be fairly excited about what God is enlarging you for, and I just want you to know that we celebrate with you from the south side of Madison. A little bit about myself. I, um, I've grown up in Madison. I've been here since 1970. My family moved here um, because my mom wanted to attend the university. She was separated from my father. They were in um, a space which would, which would result in a divorce. But uh, my mom wanted a new life. Um, she dropped out of high school but was always a sharp lady, still is a sharp lady. She's a part of our congregation. And she came and took the entrance exam here at UW-Madison and was admitted. And she got both her undergrad and master's degree here at Wisconsin. Uh, we didn't move back to Chicago. Uh, I studied at Wisconsin and so did my sister. And I met my wife, Jackie, there my senior year. And we've been here ever since. I've been the pastor of Fountain of Life. Um, I've been the senior pastor since 87. And I've been the associate. I was associate before that um, since 81. So ministry has been a huge part of my life. I've probably been in ministry more than I've not been in ministry. Um, just a little bit about my, my background. Can we do the, the, old, the old picture? In the um, mid-1940s, uh, a woman contracted uh, tuberculosis. She was in a rough spot, had had a nervous breakdown, um, was really fearful of living in, in the country in, 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 in southeast Missouri, uh, Haytai Heights. She contracted tuberculosis. She went to a prayer meeting. She was not a church lady. She had four children, each by different fathers, and had never been married. She carried a revolver, an ice pick, and um, a jackknife in her purse because she was going to make sure that no one hurt her children the way she was hurt. She went to the prayer meeting, and this congregation just took her in, and they didn't judge her because of her life or because of um, the mental breakdown that she had had or because of the contagious disease that she had. Uh, they prayed for her. The doctors never could um, find the disease again. Uh, that was my grandmother. My mother is 75 years old, and when she goes in for her physicals, she still shows positive exposure to the TB virus. And my grandmother, I lived the doctors who diagnosed her, and she actually planted the church that I now pastor. And so um, this lady right here is my grandmother, and this cutie right here is my mom. That's her younger sister. Um, my mom was my Sunday school teacher. I, re I committed myself to the Lord when I was a kid, and my mom had walked away, and she saw that my sister and I were excited about faith, and she recommitted. And um, one of the churches she served in as a, uh, as a kid, the pastor allowed her to be a Sunday school teacher at 11. She taught the preschoolers. So she's always been sharp. So I learned my Old Testament history from my mom. And so I know sometimes we worry about our critics when we're preaching. When I'm preaching, I have to look at mom and make sure that I've got it right. Is that right? Is that right? Okay. Was it Northern and Southern Kingdom? Okay. All right. <laughs> Oh, one more, one more picture. Um, but let me just say this. These folks believed what Jesus said about them. Um, they couldn't vote, couldn't sit on main toilets, couldn't walk in the front doors of churches, of, of, of restaurants. But they believed who Jesus said they were. And um, these folks believed that God was going to use them to touch the nation. And when I think that this woman helped lead her daughter to the Lord who taught me Sunday school Every time I preach, whether it's in South Africa or Korea or I'm doing ministry in India, these are the folks on whose shoulders 
I stand. And because I'm here ministering today, um, these are your spiritual ancestors. So each of you can tell your friends you've got a little spiritual black in you. <laughs> I'll just show you one other, one other picture real fast. The, 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 fam, the, the, young, the young crew. Um, if we still got that. Uh, that's my mom about 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> that was me. That was in the, when the high and tight was in. I had more hair. <laughs> I started preaching at 15. Um, the elders told me that God's hand was on me. And I didn't want to do that. I mean, I was a kid. I was fighting raging hormones and acne and everything else that teens do. I couldn't believe that God would have his hand on me. And uh, I was just a kid preaching. Um, I had just become the associate pastor of this church. And these were college students. These are folks we went to school with. And God got a hold of their hearts. Some of them I led to the Lord. Most of them I discipled. Um, I think all of them are still walking with the Lord. There are three pastors in that group. We're probably the three oldest ministers in this community. Um, But these folks believe that we could touch this city. We believe that we were young and energetic and God had given us a message of reconciliation and hope. And so I really encourage you to really listen closely to to the voices and the hearts of your college students, your high school students and middle schoolers, because you probably have very little idea of things that God's saying to them. There are things God told me back in these days in the late 70s, early 80s that are being fulfilled on Badger Road right now. And I've been hiding them in my heart for about 35 years. So. um this week, if you were uh, just down the road at Fountain of Life, what would be the emotions and the words, the personal emotions and the public words that you would uh, share with your people? And I think it's important that we hear this. Because one, one of the things that that's, I realized is it's easy for us to say, I, I, I get it. I understand what you're going through. Really sorry for the black community. I, I, I said this last night. I grew up in Evanston, Illinois, a very diverse high school of 4,500 students. 2,000 of them were black. And I, I, I tricked myself in thinking, I get it. And you know what? I, I don't get it. We don't get it. And uh, Alex was sharing a story yesterday about just instructing his daughter on what to do if you're pulled over by a cop. And I realized, I've never even thought about having that conversation with any of my children. And so we live in a different world, and it's really important. We want to, as your sister church here in Madison, we we really want to. We're just acknowledging we don't get it. And so help us better understand all the things that are going on emotionally and the things that you would share with your people. Sure. If I could just back up for a minute and make a few bullet points. Um, I think what we're doing this morning is really important. And I know we come to church ready to, to hear talks and to hear sermons. But I think what we're doing is really historic. I came to faith at a church on the west side that had a heart for reaching out to the black community. But they didn't know how to talk about it as a congregation. As a result... I came to the Lord, my sister came to the Lord, and other young African-American kids who are pastors in this community today came to faith. But that church split as a result of us being on the happy bus going to those churches. And, but because we didn't know how to talk about it. It's political, it's historic, it's personal. And so please know, it's, 
it's easy to talk about these things and to, to um, wax eloquently and spiritually as we try to pour over scriptures and preach what race relations should look like. But to have people who are brothers who are really trying to work through this, talk about this with family is really huge. This rarely happens. And I've been in ministry for 35 years. And so Mark wouldn't say these things, but I really respect him for creating this space for us to talk this way. I was at a black ministers conference a few years ago, and we're talking about just the state of things that's happening in our community. A lot of this is hitting the fan, but we've known that these things are happening. I mean, if you haven't yet, go to the City of Madison website, go to the county website and read the Race to Equity report. Madison's also at a tipping point. But I was sitting there overwhelmed, and I grabbed my iPhone, and I was in California, and I sent a text to just one brother. It was Mark. And I said, look, these are the statistics. I thought it was just Madison. It's the entire country. This is what's happening in my community. Do my white brothers and sisters know? Do you care? Do you have any interest in partnering? Because this thing is so huge, we can't fit it. We can't fix it alone. And he responded right back. He says, hey, Alex, I hear you. Of course, I don't know all the details, but let's talk when you get back. For me, I didn't, expect Mike, I, didn't expect, I didn't expect Mark to be the great white hope. I didn't expect him to say, well, here's what we're going to do, points one, two, and three. What I needed from my Christian brother was just to hear me read my text and respond. I didn't need him to fix it. I didn't need him to fund it. I didn't need him to tell me this, this doesn't happen. I didn't need him to tell me it's not as bad as it seems. I just needed him to hear it. And so because of that, we've really grown closer because I think that impedes race relations. I'm going to get to your question, but there's a quote that... Um, Martin Luther King Jr. has, and he just says, men and women often hate each other because they fear each other. And they fear each other because they don't know each other. And they don't know each other because they cannot communicate. And they cannot communicate because they've been separated. And on Sunday mornings, we're the most segregated space and time in our country during the week. And so for me to have a brother from a different ethnic background that I can just process things with is a real gift to me, and hopefully it's a gift to him. So by being here today talking about this, it doesn't feel like a dog and pony show. It's not Mark calling me up to say, hey, you're here, you're black, let's talk about this. I called him up and said, I want to have this, this conversation because I think it's important. If I were at Fountain of Life this morning, I would say something to them that, um, uh, that a captain on a cruise ship said to me. I was on a family vacation during 9-11. And we weren't allowed to get off the boat. We had docked somewhere in the Caribbean, and he wouldn't let us off. And if you've ever cruised, you know that the workers are from every country on the planet. And he came over the loudspeaker, and he said, let me tell you something. Our world is at a critical juncture. We can choose sides, and we can look at people suspiciously. He said, but today we have to all be family if we're going to get through this. We're going to be on this boat together. We need to speak. We can't be suspicious. We need to still enjoy our time together. I'm going to walk you through this. We can get through this together. It was probably one of the greatest pastoral moments I've experienced. And I would say that's a fountain of life. I would say these things are true. These things are frightening. I was in Chicago last week, and my daughter sent me a text, and she said, Daddy, I'm scared. And I thought she meant because she's starting college in a week and a half. I said, oh, baby, you're going to be fine in college. And she said, no. I'm afraid about Missouri because in her mind, she doesn't know if this is a new wave. She doesn't know if this is going to start breaking out in cities. She doesn't know what this means. She doesn't have a context for it. And so I would have to speak to the teens and say, this is not the way life is in every part of the world. I would say to African-American people, I know you're frightened and I know you're afraid. I I was interviewed on Central Time on um, Wisconsin Public Radio on Friday. 
And they asked, what are parents saying to their kids? And I said, well, this is very interesting because just last week I told my daughter, and I mean no disrespect to law enforcement. My brother is a Chicago police officer. I appreciate the men and women who protect our city. But I told my daughter, as a 17-year-old girl, I said, if you're driving somewhere and the police get behind you and it's a dark street, put your hazards on, dial 911 from your, from your cell phone and say, I know that I've been pulled over. I don't know why yet. But I'm on, a, I'm on a dimly lit street, and I just want you to know I'm just moving very slowly to the nearest PDQ or restaurant or parking lot because my parents told me I cannot stop. I don't want you to think I'm fleeing anything. I just want there to be some accountability. And I have to explain this to her. Do you understand? Under no circumstances do you stop on a dark street. I would have to then say to my non-black brothers and sisters in Fountain of Life, because we're 35% non-black, I would have to say, this is real. You may not have a box to put in it. You may not think it's true. You may have had bad experiences with the police, too. We're not saying that, but profiling is a reality. And I would have to say to a a mixed group of people, this is a reality for a lot of people and a great fear for a lot of people. But we can get in this. We can get through this together. Because the beautiful thing is we know people who we love who look different than us. But if we're so separated that we can't talk, we can't learn, we can't grow, these situations like Ferguson will just polarize us because it, it affirms everyone's greatest fear. Everyone's afraid that we've lost ground since the civil rights. And we're all uptight. And we're all afraid. And I would also say to Fountain of Life, if this were to happen in Madison, I would hope that the response would be differently because I have yet to hear what the church's response is to what's going on. And that's what breaks my heart. I have yet to hear what the church in that community is saying, and not just African-American church, but what our white brothers and sisters are saying to these issues, because that will either fuel the fire or tame it. And do you have anything more you'd say just about how you're feeling when this breaks out, when another story like this breaks out? Can you get words around that? I know it's hard. I am, um, it's, 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 it's deep sadness for our country and for our world. I mean, this is happening in the midst of what's, hap- of what's going on in Iraq and what's happening in Monrovia and Liberia and what's happening um, just in our country. It's just, in our world, it's just a dark time. There's so much pain and so much brokenness, so much sin that's just ripping at our hearts and pulling us apart. And so I think I just feel overwhelmed by this. Even, I mean, I mean, <laughs> A little comic relief. I'm a Robin Williams fan, so I'm still bumming over that. But just the fact that I know so many people in our congregation who struggle with depression. And so many of Robin's friends are coming out saying, he was great, he was this, he was that. But the people who struggle with, with depression are saying, now they're saying it. But he needed to hear that before. So then I'm thinking about all the people that's struggling with depression, all the people who have trauma, and this is triggering things for them. I think about my mom's generation, my mother-in-law who's from Selma, who marched and who lived right near the Edmund Pettus Bridge. This is triggering an older generation who really thought that they were beyond this. And it's really frightening my generation. I'm a 50-year-old because we were taught that if you work really hard and you go to school and you have advanced degrees and you work in integrated work and workplaces, these things don't happen in America. And so I feel like we're losing so much ground. But even when we lost this ground or we were trying to obtain this ground during the civil rights movement, I felt like the church was hungry and we were, we were out in the streets and we wanted to make things different. 
I feel that it's similar issues, and I feel that it's not a part of our theology. It's not a part of our biblical knowledge. It's not a part of our heritage, and we don't know what to do. I don't think the churches in Ferguson uh, just aren't given a rip, but when you have not talked about it, when you have no theology for it, it's really hard to come out strong when your city's up in flames. And that's, that's what's really disheartening to me because in the world, the church has always shined when it's been hurting. During, whether it's the bubonic plague or whether it's during a great rise of illiteracy or whether it's, it's just in different parts of, you know, in the world when the church, when the community was hurting, the church stepped up. Responding to chaos is not new to the church. Being silent during turmoil, that's new for the church. This is not how we functioned. We nursed Orphan babies in, a, in the second and third centuries after the birth of Christ, I mean, after the, after the death of Christ, the birth of the church, we did these kinds of things. And so now it just seems that we've become so insulated and so sophisticated. We don't know how to respond to community issues that we have delegated to social services. And I think we lose a great opportunity to be the church of Jesus Christ. I think we need to be shining. I think we need to be praying. I think we need to be helping. I think we need to be offering hope. The church is the only place, in my opinion, that could minister to not only Michael Brown, but the officer's family that shot him. The church has got to be the reconciler. I said that one time at a domestic violence conference. I was asked to speak to give a pastoral perspective. I said, as a pastor, I have to care for the woman that's being battered. I'm a pastor to the man that's, 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 that's afflicting those pains against her. And I'm also the pastor to the children who watch that happen. So I can't pick size like some of the agencies. I've got to be right in the throes of it and show everyone Christ's love. That's what we're really called to do. And this is a great moment for the church. And we've got to understand that what's happening in our inner cities is a reflection of what the church has run from, from several decades. And we've got to re-engage. I'm sorry, that's a long answer, but that's, that's what... Uh, that's good. So, um, you know, at the heart of all in is that verse in Jeremiah 29.7, remember it? About seeking the peace, the shalom, the well-being of the city. And as the city prospers, to pray for that, to seek it, to pursue it, to move towards that. And as the city prospers, we prosper. So that, that's our, our theme verse, right? And um, I, I heard something this week. I, I mentioned it last night. So I, Brad, our new senior associate, and RD, and Mark Deering and I went to the Global Leadership Summit that Bill Hybels puts on. A lot of these great speakers. There's a guy from... New Life Community Church in Chicago, a little church of 17,000. And um, he was talking about that verse in uh, Ezekiel 22. And let me just read, read it to you. It may be even up on the screen. I forget. The people of the land practice extortion and commit robbery. They oppress the poor and needy and mistreat the foreigner, denying them justice. This is God speaking. I look for someone among them, among God's people who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land, on behalf of the people, so I would not have to destroy it. And here's that sad epitaph. But I found no one. And so I was thinking about this whole concept of standing in the gap, and I was thinking about the recent events of how God has kind of put you kind of center stage in this city, and so I was thinking of Alex coming to preach, and I thought, I got a great idea. At the end of his sermon, we're going to acknowledge that Alex is standing the gap here in Madison. And we're going to stand around him, and I'm going to pray for him. 
And then all of a sudden, I had a complete change of mind and heart, which means I repented. Uh, that, no, that's not what the text is saying. He said it, it wasn't looking for a pastor. He wasn't looking. He was looking for God's people, someone. It could have been a woman. It could have been a child. It could have been a teen. It could have been an 80-year-old man. Someone from God's people to stand in the gap and to do what God has called his people to do, right? He's shown us what is good. He's shown us what is right and what he expects, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before our God. And so I think it's important that we move towards, okay, so you've already been hitting on it, but let's talk some more about, so how does our partnership, how does the church make a difference at a time like this for things like this, the issues that we're talking about? And and I'd love to just kind of zero back into, this is where we live. This is where God has given us relationships. Actually, this is where he's given us a city to seek the peace of. So what does that look like? Let's talk about that. Sure. I think when we talk together, our hearts are knit and we realize how much we really, we really have in common. And I remember when Mark first came to town, he um, had Randy introduce us, we had lunch, and I made up my mind right from the beginning that I didn't like him. (laughs) And it's not because he's a bad guy, I liked him, but it's just because Brad Smith and I were old tennis buddies. We were friends from way back. And I just made up my mind I wasn't going to like anybody that was going to come in behind him. And so, plus, I also had so much transition in Madison. And I had these nice white guys who said, I want to really be your white brother. And uh, I'd go to Promise Keepers, and people would call me down to the field. Coach would say, come on, black men. And then these white guys would hug me, put me on the shoulders, kiss me. I felt like Black Rudy. Um, <laughs> and so there was so much stuff you know, coming at me. I mean, that's why I met people like Tiny Peters. I mean, we go way back. I mean, we, when you, yeah, when you guys were Buckeye, we used to go to, we used to go to Soldier's Field together to Promise Keepers things. And so, but there was so much transition. So when he came in and said, I want to be a friend with you, I want to partner with, you know, with you in the community, I thought, yeah, 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 I heard that before. Uh, And he said, and he teases me now because he said he saw that in my eyes. He could tell that I blew him off. But when we re-engaged, I asked him questions like, we're leading the nation in the incarceration of black men. So I'm putting together a council. We're going to sit down with the Secretary of Corrections, and we're going to hold him accountable for what's happening in our community. Would you like to be a part of this council? I want to see if he really wants to be my friend. Um, he came. We sat in meetings together. He heard the things that they said. He read the, 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 um, um, the rule sheets that were printed in 2006 that weren't up to date. Um, he heard the people in direct, the, the Department of Corrections say, we want to protect the community. And he spoke up. He started taking on the system and saying, well, we believe in redemption. We weren't arguing about whether or not people should go to prison. We we're talking about how they're, tra- how they're treated when they come out. Well, when Mark started going with me in some of the battles that I had, I realized that not only was this a fellow pastor and a brother, this was someone in the trenches with me. Because for them to say some of that nonsense in front of other people, helped me to not have to feel like I was sitting down with Mark saying, and do you know what they're saying? Do you know what happens at the, at, the, at, the, at the governmental level? Do you know what they're saying about young men who are incarcerated? For him to be able to hear that with me and challenge it and speak to it with me was very affirming because at that point, it was not my issue or black issue. It was a faith issue. It was a justice issue. And it was our issue. I think the way our partnership works in this, this way is that we journey together. 
because he gets to sit in some of the places where I sit, he gets to hear these things firsthand. And then he's changed the way I was changed. When he hears what I'm hearing, his heart is ripped open too, and he wants to be a part of the solution. I think we're so separated that we don't know people's pain. We hear what's going on with Brown. And listen, we're not trying to, you know, right now the question really isn't innocence, because that's going to come out in some way. It's really the, the issue that there's an unarmed black teen that's dead that should have been in college this week, and that is happening more and more and more. And, um, and what we've got to understand is we just want people to know this is real, that this is a fear, that we have people who worship with you. They sing the same songs. They clap the same songs. Their kids are in the same youth ministry with your kids. But you probably don't realize that when their sons are out of their sight, they're saying, oh, you probably don't think that because they're in rotary with you. We're, we're, you know, we, we may golf with you. We may do all kinds of things. However, we've been taught from a very young age, if you're pulled over, 10 and 2. Make your hands clear. Don't make any sudden movements. Yes, sir. No, sir. Be very compliant. Don't have any attitude. Don't have any lip. Don't have any smack. So you don't realize that we're operating on this whole different plane. But if you're just hearing that through CNN, you don't believe it. But when Mark heard that with me, and he trusts me, and he hears my heart and what I say to my daughter in this process, he doesn't have to filter to it through it and think, okay, is this rhetoric? Is Alex trying to be the new Al Sharpton? What's really going on? Because we've got a relationship, he knows that I'm telling the truth. But if we don't have people we can talk to and listen to, this all becomes rhetoric. And, and then we go on to talk more about what's happening um, in Hollywood. And so I think what the church has got to do is it's got to position itself to really ask, okay, what is this? What, what, what does have happened the same way? It, are there differences here? Um, you know, we talk about the crime in Ferguson, but I've been doing some research. Blacks are pulled over many times more than whites. However, when people are stopped, whites are 30, the, the rate at which um, they are found with weapons and drugs is 30% of the time. With blacks, it's only 20% of the time. Although blacks are most of the stops. But when they do stop whites, they have, they have weapons and they have drugs more than the blacks that are stopped. And so we don't get into the... So then if that's the case, why is the profiling happening the way that it's happening? And so I think when we know each other's stories, we know how to pray, we know how to process, and we just look at our world differently. I know that sort of pops a bubble for us because we don't think that we live in that world. I didn't think so either. But when the police pulled me over in front of my church door and asked what I was doing there. And my white associate, who I hired, I signed his paycheck. He was in the parking lot. He was the only car there when the police trailed me in. He got out of his car and walked over to the police. They asked him if I was who I said I was. They didn't ask him for ID. They didn't ask him who he was. They didn't say, get back in your car. They didn't say, what are you doing here? They wanted to know who I was, what I was doing there. They want to know all of all of these things. But yet I'm sitting there still at 10 and 2, but I'm fuming because this is embarrassing because I was taught that if you grew up in Madison and you have an earned doctorate and you grew up in this community where you delivered newspapers and you were a Cub Scout and you protected this community, the police would not pull you over and treat you like you're a drug dealer. I was taught that, but I can't hold that alone. I need my brothers and sisters to, to know this. I've had pastors in this community call me and say, what are you guys going to do about Ally Drive? when their church was closer to Ally Drive than ours. So we need the body of Christ to know we're on alert. I'm telling you, I'm in meetings. This is what I do for a living. The mayor, the county executive, the governor, people are, they're trying to figure out what the solutions are. The church, we've been building bridges. We've been crossing um, um, K-12 
chasms um, for years. We know how to do this. The cross reconciles us. So I'm not just telling people to go and just be all nice and social. I'm trying to take the church back to the cross. I'm not trying to take you any place that's not biblical, but the cross tells us to treat this differently. The cross tells us to call that young man a brother, a neighbor, and find out what we can do to help him. The cross calls us to bandage each other's wounds, to sing together, to pray together, to laugh with each other, and to mourn with each other. So the more we interact with each other, the more we trust each other, the more our stories become reality. And I feel that in our partnership, my story has become a part of my brother's story. And I think that that's what strengthens our partnership. But far too little of this happens. That's why I think what we're doing today, what we're doing here, what we're trying to model and demonstrate in the city is so important because this is the gospel. This isn't just some extracurricular thing. This is the gospel. And last thing I want to say before Mark probably gets to his last question is we often talking about we often talk about the sin of Israel and why it fell consistently in the Old Testament. But if you watch God's rebuke, it's often about the treatment of the poor and the outsiders, and the widows. We talk about the idols, and, we, and those things happen, but it went part, it was part and parcel with the treatment of the poor. Ezekiel 16 talks about you're unfair, you're unconcerned, you're rich, you don't care about those that are hungry and starving around you. And so when we think, even the glory leaving the temple, talk about how we want to ready the house, the glory left when they forgot why the house existed. It was a place for the grace of God to meet the brokenness of humanity. And so I think as we learn to love, as we learn to know each other's stories, we beckon the glory of God to our churches in a way we've been needing it for years. Good. Yeah, that's good. So where do we, uh, the people of God, at a time where we wonder if we're making any progress in these things? And I mean, I... Just reading the front section of any paper, getting online and seeing the headlines, it just bums you out. I mean, just repeatedly. I just don't even want to look at it sometimes. Right, right. So where do we find hope? Um, why don't you just speak to that? Sure. We have to remind ourselves about the Savior we worship. This is God incarnate, God made human. Peterson says that something to the effect that God put on flesh and lived among us. Christ engaged brokenness and he didn't run from it. If faith means to us an escape from pain, you signed up on the wrong team. This isn't a country club. This is reality. This is faith. We exist to bind up those that are broken. We exist to pour salve on those who are wounded. We exist to walk alongside single moms, ex-offenders, folks who are, who, who are committing white-collar crimes, folks whose families are broken, those who have been divorced. We are called. We exist to be that healing bomb. So what we do is get back to our roots. This is what the church does. When the disciples stood in front of Jesus and said, are you at this time going to restore Israel? He said, you know, don't worry about what I'm going to do with the emperor in Rome, but I want to work on you right now because your brokenness, your division, your racism is why the glory left the temple and why the Romans are in power anyway. So let's bring the glory of God back by allowing you to be unified and you to love each other and care for each other. He started working in their hearts, and Pentecost broke out every time they crossed the cultural barrier. Every time they moved to the, into the, with the Samaritans and they moved out to the Gentiles, every time they moved outside their own circles, the spirit fell again. So what we do is we, we pray, and we understand this is the church's history. This is not new. No one's trying to co-opt the church. The church has already been co-opted. 
we get back to caring for folks, building orphanages, putting in wells, loving people, caring for people, and understanding that it is no accident that we're in this community that leads the nation in so many disparities. So at the very least, we pray about it. Let's see what the scripture says about it. Don't take my word for it. See what the scripture says about justice issues in the Old Testament. Read Micah. Read Amos. Read Habakkuk. See what scripture says about it. See what Jesus did and how often he walked among those who were, who were discarded. Because he said, what I, what, I only do what I see the Father do. And the way he engaged those who were disenfranchised was how he built his family. And I think what we do is we're surrounded by brokenness. Let's strategize. Many of us here make a living being strategic in our businesses and our work and and our programs. Let's be strategic about touching and loving those that are hurting around us. Ask God who he's given to Door Creek. Why do you exist here? Who does he want you to love? And how do you reach out in your communities? And how do you pray? What do you write? What do you read? What do you watch? that clues you in and ties you into the issues. You can move into a, to, to a, a, a learning mode where you just make yourselves aware of what's happening in the world, and I assure you the Holy Spirit will teach you how to pray about it. And the Holy Spirit will give you strategies. I can give them to you, but that might not be right. But what the Holy Spirit speaks to you, you've got to obey. So I just think just demonstrate an openness. Begin to ask God and ask questions and see movies and read things and talk to people, but pray that the church will really be able to respond to the brokenness in society. And I guarantee you, we will see revival and people coming to Christ like we never have before. No one can give comfort to that green mother's heart, um, that young man's mother, like the, like the church. No one, no one, they can drug her up, they can try to give her meds, they can give her counseling. No one can minister to her about the hereafter and redemption, but the church. And at some point, this is too early to say, but at some point, the church can even teach her how to begin to walk in forgiveness. Not today. There's just so much pain in her heart. No one talks that but the church. So we have to rise up. Good. We've, we've got a lot more on our hearts, and, but there's an 11 o'clock service. So we've got to wrap it up. So what I'd like to do is... Uh, uh, Pastor G, would you pray for us, and then I'll close praying for Fountain of Life and for what God has called us together at this time in this place, okay? Yes. Dora Creek, can I say this to you before we pray? I said this last night, and I just I, it's on my heart just to share this again. When a person of color, an African-American man like myself, talks about issues, it's very easy to write me off as being angry. Um, many of you might have read my article, Justified Anger. I didn't name that. Cap Times did. I happen to like it, but I didn't name that. Uh, and so it's given me sort of this, 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 um, this image. When I talk about the issues, I'm angry at sin. I'm angry at the enemy. I'm not angry at you. I didn't come here to point fingers at you. I came here because you're my brothers and sisters, and I can talk to people who I think care, and if they were more informed, could do something differently. So when you hear these topics, please don't shut down and don't think that we're pointing fingers and I'm trying to call out racists, because that's not my role. That's not my job. But as a pastor, it is my job to help call us into what it means to be the family of God. You've been partners with us for years, and not once have you ever made us feel subservient or that we have some sense of ownership to you because you supported what we do with Nehemiah and with Fountain of Life. I respect you and your leadership because of the way you've interacted with the issues of our community. I want you and need you to be a part of the solution. And don't leave your feeling Fingers were being pointed at you. The only reason why I can speak as honestly as I did this morning about race relations is because I feel and believe that you're family. So, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here at Door Creek Church.
And I pray that your spirit would move them in great ways that honors heaven. You have given them space and land and facility and beautiful, talented people. And you've also given them a broken community that needs to see a church that cares. And so I thank you for our partnership. I thank you for the solace and for the healing that is provided for me. And I thank you that it's reminded me that there are brothers and sisters who don't look like me, who care for me and care for the issues that I care about. That is such a gift to me. And so many of my African-American brothers and sisters who are pastors don't have that. Breathe on this congregation and show them your plan so clearly in Christ's name. And Lord, I pray for Fountain of Life, and I pray that your people on the south side this morning will remember the end of the story, that you, in your great power through your Son and the good news about him, will bring all things that are fractured and broken together under Christ. And I pray that your spirit would grow in your church at Fountain of Life and here, that we would move in the patterns and ways of your son and I pray that his presence at fountain of life this morning even as Kevin is preaching perhaps right now would fill him with your love and that your love would chase away the fears and I pray Lord that you take this really hard thing to make it a good thing and make us better partners in this city for you as we desire to see the gospel renew this city to transform lives we pray this for your glory in Christ's name Amen. Let's give Alex a big thank you.